0: oh yeah what's up everybody welcome welcome to the artists of data science happy hour number 40. this is the 40th week in a row we've been doing this man i can't believe that 40 weeks in a row we've been here live and direct man answering you guys' questions building this community couldn't be happier to be here with you guys every single friday shout out to everybody trickling into the room we got my man ken g in the house ken what's up we got antonio antonio man good to see you again russell my friend how's it going man we got we got vin vashista entering into the room nisha what's going on man super excited to have all of you guys here hope you guys had a good week can't believe it's already uh damn can first of all i can't believe i been doing this for 40 weeks it's insane to me uh It's just, that's wild. Um, Another, another few months and it'll be a year straight. So that's, that's cool, man. Um, But hopefully you guys' week has been good. Got a chance to uh, hang out with my friend, mike delgado on the data talk podcast earlier this week that was a really special episode for me Uh, mike was the first person that i had reached out to one of the first people that i reached out to to be on my podcast and uh i actually went through his list of people who he had on his podcast and i was like huh if this person's been on one podcast maybe they might want to be on another one and so that's how i kind of uh poached his audience list um Released an episode today with uh, Barbara Oakley. She wrote the book, A Mind for Numbers. She is the teacher behind the course, um, learning how to learn the most popular MOOC on Coursera. Um, So that was a... Great episode released, uh, released that today, but we recorded it on January 3rd, so it's uh, quite a bit delayed. Um, but yeah, man, super excited to have you guys here. If you guys have questions wherever you are, whether it is on YouTube, Twitch, or LinkedIn, go ahead and leave your question right there in the chat and we'll get to it. There's also, um, yeah, there's also a link wherever you are to get into the room as well, so do join in on that. Krishna, what's going on, man? Super happy to, uh, to to have you here as well well uh antonio is asking what's been my favorite podcast episode i've done uh antonio in terms of like ones i've been on or ones that i've recorded
1: that you've recorded
0: Uh, yeah i mean two of my top favorite ones that i've recorded without a doubt it's got to be with vin vishista and kenji but barring those two (laughs) good answer (laughs) barring those two i'd say um uh, a few of my favorite ones haven't even been released yet but the one of the ones that have been released definitely robert green that was a, a really cool episode to do uh next week i got one releasing with james altisher and that's um one of my favorite ones as well so i really enjoyed enjoyed that matt diamond what's going on annie duke yeah i forgot i had an interview with annie duke as well that's crazy man all these interesting people have uh a chance to to interview um but yeah let's let's go ahead and get this thing kicked off you guys got questions let me know right there in the chat wherever you are i'll be monitoring all platforms um but let's get it started with with the with a warm-up question all right so how about this so we we've uh man i should have thought about this before i went live how about this talk to me about um, for those of you who know how to do nlp or have been learning about nlp um would you guys be able to share some resources or s- share some tips with uh, with us? And by us, I mean uh, mostly me because I'm trying to learn that as well. Uh, if anybody here has any experience with that, let me know. Um, in the meantime, I'll be looking for questions in the chat and on LinkedIn and everywhere else. Um, but if you don't uh, have any any insight onto that, then go for it and ask your question. Uh, Russell, I see you had a question here in the chat. Go for it.
2: Even, everyone else so uh yeah i was interested to know from 40 episodes in there so that's a lot what's been the most interesting mess up in all of that time or what have you learned the most from
0: the the most interesting mess up in terms of uh just
2: i mean we had yeah, just we had something that went that
0: wrong oh man i mean I feel, I feel like the beginning parts of most episodes go kind of wobbly because i'm trying to get the conversation going and, and started um but i mean i remember there's one week where i was uh, talking and I think I left my microphone on mute for a good like 30 seconds or something like that and that was right around April-ish or something like that uh, but I was just looking through some of the back catalog of you know the past 40 episodes and there's there's a period of time and there's like 40 to 50 people in these things uh, right around winter time and that was a lot of fun man um, but some of the early ones like number 10 11 9 10 11 have a lot of great insight information um those are just ones I was looking at in particular for, for today. Um, but yeah, shout out to everybody on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, uh, monitoring the comments. So if you guys have any questions, please do let me know. Um, but yeah, then that let's, let's turn to the, let's turn to you guys, man. How you guys been doing Vin? What's going on, man? Nice shirt, by the way. I like that.
3: Yeah. We coordinated, right. We called before it's Aloha shirt, Aloha <laughs> Friday.
0: <laughs> I love it, man. I love it.
3: I
4: usually practice, but I I'm mm-hmm. off my game today.
0: Then practice just uh just being awesome. How, how practice, practice
4: Aloha Friday.
0: Aloha Friday is that an actual every,
4: thing? Yeah. Every every job I've ever been at, I uh instigated Aloha Friday or instituted. I don't know exactly what the right word is there, but a good way to pick up morale. You know who who looks unhappy in a Hawaiian
3: shirt ever?
0: Yeah, for real, man. I didn't know Aloha Friday was a thing. It just I just coincidentally happened that I'm always wearing. These no, it is. Yes,
3: summer. we even have a song about it back home. <laughs> there is an Aloha Friday song.
0: So, even are you from from Hawaii? Yep, born and raised. No shit, dude. When did you yes. move? When you move to the mainland? Yeah,
3: no, the shirt's official.
0: This is this has been approved Hawaiian shirt, dude. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I did not know that you were uh, actually from Hawaii. That's pretty cool, man. Um, but yeah, man. So let's go ahead, man, and and uh, and see if there's any questions in the chat. Um, so. Russell asking, biggest mess ups. How about this one? Not having a, uh, a question lined up for, for uh, the beginning of happy hour. I've been just I've been grinding all day, man. I've been really trying to learn natural language processing, mostly because I'm sitting on just a, a huge amount of text data from the transcripts of all the previous podcasts, all the previous happy hours, comment, ML office hours, all that stuff. I just feel like there could be something that, that I could do with all that data. Um, so, I started cleaning a lot of it, um, but it's really, really tedious. So, I'm starting to outsource that, looking for people on Upwork to clean up those transcripts because the uh, automatic translation, you know, gets about 90-ish percent of it. Uh, Ken, I saw you as a-
4: Yeah, well, two things. Ben, I didn't know you are from, from out here. I, I live in Oahu now. So, if you're ever back out this way, let me know. Um, second thing... I know one of my one of my friends, Abhishek Thaker is working at Hugging Face. So they're doing auto NLP. Could be a cool product to look into, Could, good platform. He is an absolute rock star and definitely knows what he's doing on that front. So he also might be a good person to reach out to, to chat with. Um a re- really good guy and always looking to help
0: yeah he's the uh kaggle grandmaster guy right
4: the first four-time grandmaster yeah.
0: yeah yeah he's he's got he's got a lot of awesome stuff i didn't know he was uh out there hugging face working on on a product like that i've definitely got to go check that out um but yeah man let's let's turn it over to the audience you guys help me out here if you guys have any questions please do let me know it has been a long long week for me so uh my brain is a bit fried
1: i have a question for for you guys um uh, I guess for everybody that's creating content like what was that moment pre Ken, I know Vin that where you kind of got over in the hump and said like all right today's the day I actually started recording this podcast or because I know for me I, I started recording some stuff but it was quite a few months where I'm like well I'll, I'll start and I'll, I'll do it tomorrow but then something inside you you know it doesn't And then one day it just, just clicks up. Um, But I'm still not there yet. Like you've been doing this for 40 weeks straight. I guess it's a habit for you now. But if you could share a little bit about kind of like, what is that that got you to
2: take action?
0: Yeah. Yeah, dude. I was uh, like, when I first started the podcast, I was just, I was thrashing a lot. Right. Like I'd recorded a bunch of episodes, but then I was like, I don't know what the format is going to be. Like I wanted to do it like a, like a talk show where it would be like part opening monologue. Uh, then it would be the interview. Then it would be like, like audience questions, stuff like that. I had like this thing planned out. And um, I, I just noticed that I was just wasting time writing monologues right and and just i was like dude this is not useful it's not getting anything done i've got like 12 episodes recorded um i need to push these out i need to do something with it otherwise the momentum's just gonna die um so it was just then i was like all right well i know for a fact what i'm doing is is not conducive to my ultimate goal which is just to put stuff out there right um and i just said fuck it i'm just gonna do interview shows like that's that's what i'm doing that's what i'm going for and at that moment i just kind of let it rip and then from there just trajectory has been insane uh ken what about you man because you're like almost what you said we're talking yesterday for a while ken and uh, it was cool connecting with you you did like 130 videos already or like 200 videos something like that
4: i think i'm almost at 200 um and we actually talked a little bit about this yesterday i think it's pretty important is that once you start building momentum that's a beautiful thing and you can continue from that But in order to create momentum, you need volume. And I think you should produce good stuff out there. Like you don't want to put out stuff. You don't want to just like throw a bunch of stuff out there and it it all be trash. But if you can get to a point where you're producing consistently, where you've got a good backlog, a lot of content, that's where you grow the most. One of my favorite things, it was either like an art class or like a photography class, right? And the professor essentially said that half of the class is tasked with taking one picture and making it as good as possible. That's what they'll be graded on. And the other half of the class is going to be evaluated on how many pictures that they take, just purely on volume. And it turned out that the the half of the class in both of these scenarios that were in charge of volume, just putting stuff out there, they took significantly better pictures. In the pottery class, they made significantly better pottery because they were getting the reps in. So if we're looking at content creation as this consistent journey, this iterative process, that is how you create that momentum. That's how you get to that point. Like now it's just like, I look at every piece of content that I create as a way that I'm improving my future content. So it isn't this like, oh, I have to get to this threshold. Every, every single, you know, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's my podcast, whether it's a YouTube video, it's all just like part of this moving train that's going forward. Um, and I think that we get a little bit kind of too wrapped up in the early stages too because nobody, nobody looks at our stuff in the early stages. So you can like, frankly, make the quality not quite as good, but make sure it is practice, make sure you're getting those reps in. Because when people, when it is starting to get traction, when you are getting viewership, you'll be glad that you put in those hours before that no one was watching your stuff when you were making the mistakes and that's okay, right? Like if someone sees that I made a YouTube video two years ago and it like, frankly, wasn't that good. The editing is crap. Hopefully the advice and stuff is good. Um, they'll see a video that I've made now and be like, wow, this person has improved so much. That's what they're gonna be evaluating against. It's not gonna be like, oh, we made this video two and a half years ago and it was trash. They'll be like, wow, look at his new video versus this one. This person has come so far so far along the way and they gotta be a part of that journey, which I think is is incredible as well. Yeah. I like that. Thanks for
0: sharing. Absolutely do. I love that too. And I mean, just speaking about like 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 the, the process of creating, do you find yourself like thrashing, like, you know, purposely doing stuff that isn't moving the needle forward just because you kind of feel stuck. Like for me, for the longest time, it was editing. Like I used editing my podcast as a distraction for other things related to my podcast. And then it it I just finally realized that, okay, I can't waste my time doing this because this particular task isn't going to really impact the output of the or quality of the podcast which for me was because i need to ask good questions i need to research the guests i need to understand their body of knowledge like that's where i should spend my time not editing the podcast and stuff like that you just kind of tend to outsource have, did you come across any issues like that ken or vin or anybody else out here that creates content
4: i'll let vin go first and then i definitely have some thoughts on that one yeah definitely no you carry the momentum i'll, I'll chime in afterwards sounds good so one thing that I've I've found is I also have that problem, right? There are plenty of things that I don't um, see as much value in. And I know that I probably should do them or have to do them or whatever that might be. Um, about a year ago, I think it was 2019, I decided to devote all of my attention to YouTube. Essentially, that would be the platform that I focused everything on and everything else would essentially just be cake, right? If I gained LinkedIn followers, whatever that might be, if I created an audience there, it wouldn't be because of the dedicated effort I put in on LinkedIn. It would be an after effect and a positive externality from the stuff I was doing on YouTube. And so essentially I was able to use that tunnel vision to focus on what exactly I needed to do on YouTube to grow. Um, to me, being able to narrow it down, use like a 80, 20 principle or a one thing principle where you're like, Hey, these are the things that are going to move the lever the furthest. I need to focus on, you know, like if, if, I'm, you know, if I are in a boat and one motor is pushing a lot harder and it it moves the boat a lot further, we're going to focus our effort on that motor rather than the other ones that uh, aren't as relevant, that aren't going to move the ship quite as far. So I think that it's okay to eliminate. It's okay to, to like fall behind or, or, you know, like, you know, if you have, if you're doing a newsletter and you're doing a podcast and you're doing YouTube, like you should get a head start with one of those and it'll carry everything else. Uh, To me, it's, it's, not efficient, or it's a bad idea to start all three of those at the same time and expect to have success in any of them. So I would always look to what you can trim down, what is, you know, like what's not gonna detract from your brand, what's not gonna detract from whatever you're putting out there, um, but also think about, hey, I'm gonna focus my attention on what does move me the furthest, what does, what is gonna create the most impact. Um, and you are inevitably gonna have to sacrifice something but you can make like efficient sacrifices that create momentum or that create like huge surplus in, in other areas.
0: Ken, thank you so much, man. That's if there's one person to take advice from on that front, it's that man right there. Ken, thank you so much. Then uh, let's go to you. Let's hear, let's hear about this. Uh, the, the first kind of question that Antonio was asking was all about getting over that hump of just deciding to push the content out. What was that like for you? It was
3: interesting. I started originally on Twitter in 20... I think I started my account in 2010. And I actually started using my account intelligently in 2012. Same thing with LinkedIn. I started actually using LinkedIn in 2012, but I had that forever. And the first thing I did was curation. I didn't think about it so much intentionally as to what I was doing, but curation for me was a great way to start creating a voice for myself because I was using my ability, my filter and my ability to say, okay, this is important. This is excellent content here. Check this out. This is why this is important was like my next thing. Then I was saying, okay, read this because it's important and here's why. And it was cyclical. I started developing my voice through, you know, going sort of standing behind other people first, and then explaining pieces of why this is important second. And then that pushed me to have enough confidence to start posting on a regular basis on Twitter and then on LinkedIn. And so that was the gateway for me was it went from curation to find my own voice and then realizing that people actually wanted to hear my opinion. And that was the interesting thing was going from why would anyone care about what I have to say to oh, wow, why do so many people care what I have to say? And it was that process of discovery for me that I realized people wanted to listen to me. And then I had to go backwards and figure out why they wanted to listen to me. And then I worked backwards to who was listening to me. You know, what... Was I actually influencing? Because I ran into somebody who probably doesn't want me to drop his name, but um, ran into somebody who said, okay, define influencer. And that was one of those, oh, uh, well, I guess you would have to influence people to do something you would actually have to get people to act, get people to think, get people to do. And that started me on the journey of, okay, so I want to influence people. What do I want to influence them to do? what do i want to teach them what do i want to expose that i don't think people are talking about enough what parts of the field are undercovered what parts of the field and what people in the field and you know you can hear this evolution and this was really over the course of 7 years going from doing this unintentionally to doing this more intentionally picking the topics that i thought were worth going after And now I'm at the point where I I really have some fairly well-defined lanes. I have the channels that I use. I just opened up YouTube because I think a lot of junior level and early career level data scientists like YouTube. And I think I can also teach some more complex concepts using video than I could using blogs, which is where I started out. And I see things like LinkedIn sort of falling behind in reaching people and as a creator platform, and hopefully they'll be fixing that. And that's another piece of the puzzle is looking at how all of these platforms have evolved and some have fallen behind and being ready to like, I have a hundred and something thousand followers on LinkedIn, and I'm probably going to be moving away from LinkedIn unless they move their needle forward for getting people you know, involved in content creation. And so now I'm looking at Substack and having a, you know, a different relationship with newsletters. And, uh, you know, so the final piece that I'll say is if I could do one thing better, I would have figured out how I was going to monetize from the beginning rather than getting, you know, a few years into my content creator career. And then in like 2017, 2018 going, wait a minute, you mean you can make money doing this? okay, so how am I going to make money doing this? And it was sort of backwards where, you know, if you're going to be a creator, always expect to get paid. Don't feel bad about expecting to get paid for sharing your ideas, your knowledge, and your abilities. And figure out how to monetize upfront and then keep those two strategies of, I'm providing a great resource to people in the community. But at the same time, there's a return. I should be getting some cash out of this and figure out how you're going to do that.
0: That's yeah, one thing I was talking with uh, Ken about yesterday as well was figuring out ways to, to, you know, get some, some support and funding monetization for, for some of this like effort. It's a lot of effort, man, putting in like, content, creating content. It's uh, definitely not, not easy.
4: Yeah. I would, this, I would uh, actually push back against that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Greg, but um, I actually don't think you, you should get into content creation for the finances because I think you'll hit a threshold where um, like, like money, the monetization of this comes at the, like long way into the journey, regardless of how you approach it, at least from my experience. And if you're, you're, you know, your, your goal is to get to that monetization threshold, you're gonna have to put in hours and hours of work, you know, hundreds of hours of work to be able to get there. And if it's if I'm not saying that like then I know money is not the only driver for you, but if, if your your sole focus is that monetization, if you're let's say you're a data scientist, like your hourly rate, my hourly rate for content creation still is like less than twenty dollars per hour, right for the amount of time that I put in so if if you're going down that route for the monetization purpose really difficult road and you better you for me i had to freaking love it i had to like the the community building i had to like some of these other stuff before i flipped on that monetization switch otherwise i wouldn't have had you know i haven't had longevity yet i've only been doing this for a couple years but i don't think i would have been around as long as i've been um because i would have been pretty discouraged pretty fast
0: yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. Not hundred percent agree with you on that, uh, Greg. You, you had a comment there.
2: No, I was going to say I was following something very interesting on uh, about YouTube, like the the big influencers that push uh, multiple many videos and things like that. That that kind of you know uh, uh, create so many videos and in one time they just scale uh, uh, exponentially. So what I've heard is uh, in order to avoid and they do so without knowing. And the successful ones, the successful creators on, on YouTube, they avoid being one-hit wonders because of that pile of videos they've, they've, they've built over the years. So to, to the point of Vin and, and Ken, this is actually what drives the most value. So you get to a point where you make that one video that gives you million-plus views, but people get tired quickly, and you might become a one-hit wonder. But when you have a portfolio of videos of subjects that people can go back. That's what really helps you drive your uh, 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 follower base. So it's really important to not focus on just making that one thing that gives you a lot of views, but really increasing that list of portfolio subjects, given that they do enhance your brand and they do uh, address the issues that you want to address.
0: Yeah. man, excellent points. Antonio, hopefully you got some, you got some good tips there and hopefully you start pushing some stuff out and getting that content out there. I mean,
1: yeah, no, it's been good. I guess for me it was, so I spoke at one of my old college classes and a lot of the kids started asking about resume advice. So I kind of made a video and I was like, all right, I'm keep repeating myself. Let me just send it out there. And that video did did great. I, I posted it on Reddit and it ended up picking up within like the, my first video within an hour, like 600 likes, it went up to like 10,000 views on YouTube, you know, within like a day So, which I wasn't looking for that. So I was like, all right, so let's start doing some some more stuff. And while I do think resume building is important, I keep telling them like, okay, once you, how do you interview? Once you get the job, how do you succeed? I think like one of my other videos is about networking after your first job. And I just got stuck at that point where all the people that were following me now just cared about getting that one job. And I'm like, I, I like helping you with the job, but you gotta realize that it's a very, very long journey. And it seemed to be the community or the the people I was building was they will come to me, get the resume advice, they get the job, and they disappear off of the face of the earth. And you know, and they weren't kind of following the other stuff. So that's why I kind of had that a little bit of a downtime trying to really see where to focus because. Well I, well, I do. Like I said, I like helping them with the resume, but I think I want to go beyond that. So I think I just got to keep going and just find the, the right audience. But at the same time, like you guys are saying, I guess if people just want a job then and I can help them with that, then maybe I should just roll with that. <laughs> I'm
4: actually always fighting that. So a lot of my content is for people in the early stages of data science, right? And I'm seeing the exact same thing. Once they get a job, they just don't watch as much content for me because... That's what their initial focus is. Okay. And I think that it's okay to, to even niche down within that and to say, hey, this is what our focus is, but to also have little tidbits that push that journey further. So, you know, on my, through my content, I have some tutorial stuff. I also have some advice on the job stuff. And inevitably, after someone gets a job and they're already familiar with you, once they have a question related to that domain, they'll probably come back and take a look at it. So it might not be viral content. You might not get as many views, but I look at those things as longer-term content, things that people, something that's evergreen, where people are going to continue to refer back to. And I wouldn't look at it in terms of chasing the audience. I think about it of the life cycle of these individual people and where you can make touch points with them. So like it might it might be a year down the road, it might be six, years, six months down the road, but They probably will come back if they do have a question and it's awesome if you have content for them right when they're ready for it. So I would start thinking about it like, hey, let's go on the journey with them. Where do I want to be in their life and where does it make sense and and make content around that, but also make content you want to make where you think the the advice is going to be the best because you're going to like love making that content. It's going to be so much more fun. Um, So that's kind of where I would I would leave that one. I like that. No, thank you. That's, that's great advice.
1: Maybe we can build a predictive model to predict their next problems (laughs) and we'll all share those. You can go
4: go go through all the comment data on my videos. If you want, there's a lot of recommendations there.
0: Once Harpreet
1: masters NLP, we'll get him to do
0: it. Man, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Right on, man. Hey, great conversation, everybody. I loved it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for helping me, uh, kick it up, Antonio. Appreciate that. Appreciate the uh, question, kicking it off. Um, Christian, if you got a question, where did Christian go? Is he still here?
2: Yeah, still here. Cut off the video for a second there. Oh, yeah. Hey, you're, uh,
0: you're not actually driving right now, are you? Because try to be safe. Nope. All right, good.
3: Nope. I'm about to just pick up groceries. I'm here with my son, and he said, "Hey, uh, that guy has a really smooth voice. You should tell him to do some <laughs> ASMR videos." <laughs> so yeah, that's, oh, that's the host. Now, my question is just around. Opportunities and solutions and frameworks, especially uh, curious to hear from the data standpoint. But you know, do you guys have favorite frameworks or approaches you like to use to, um, you know, uh, develop solutions and or identify high priority opportunity areas? You think about it in terms of use cases. It's on my mind because I'm in product mm-hmm. management right now, and um, the better I get at at developing that kind of opportunity solution space, the more I see how it applies to pretty much everything the most important step one seems to be pick a good opportunity, right? So how, how do you guys go about doing that?
0: Awesome question, man. Um, Eric, let's, let's go to you for this one. Shout out to Eric.
5: Yo. Yo. <laughs> so uh, for sizing up like use case opportunities that I'm not totally sure about. Um, that's something that I've been, that I'm thinking about a lot as well. And like in kind of on a daily or at least a couple times a week basis as I'm trying to size up, different, different priorities. You know, I think, I think for me, the biggest thing is just like knowing I just always am going to my stakeholders and trying to understand better because I just assume and figure that they understand the customer better than I understand the customer. And so I'm just always trying to, how do I get into their, get into their shoes better. And then, you know, mostly when I think of frameworks, I've primarily been involved in like process improvement frameworks. So like DMAIC for like Six Sigma um, and things like that. But I don't know a whole lot about before that, like the breaking down the define into finer and finer pieces. So I'm listening. Yeah.
0: Uh, let's, uh, let's go to Vin for this one. Then after Vin, we'll go to Greg. Also shout out to everybody else in the room. Ashik, what's up, Dylan? What's up? Tor, my man. Good to see you back. Jay, Matt, good to see all you guys here. Uh, Vin, what's your take on, uh, Christian's question about, uh, frameworks for identifying opportunities, use cases, things like that. I actually just
3: did a video on this. Awesome. Crossover. Um, There's one, this is an ancient framework, and it's uh, the concept of portfolio management. This thing's old. Don't use it in strategy planning. But the thought process is still really valid when you're looking at, okay, I have tons and tons of different things that I could possibly be working on. And you look at all of your opportunities. I'm assuming you've identified a good number of opportunities, things that you could potentially be working on. And I would say from a perspective of, okay, I got opportunities now. That's a portfolio, basically. And so you want to evaluate all of those ideas based on their potential returns. And that means you're probably talking to a ton of different people who are going to give you opinions on the returns. And then you're going to have to go out and validate which ones, which one of those opinions are actually true, which ones, you know, which problems here are worth solving. And you're going to gather a bunch of opinions, you're going to have to review your portfolio, and you're going to have to make a decision based on revenue and impact to the business. You're also going to have to take sentiment into account all of those opinions and all those interviews and try to figure out, okay, this is the highest returning with also the highest backing because you need both. You need money that's significant but you also need people to care because you can solve problems and say, Hey, this is going to give us a ton of cash. But if no one cares, I don't understand why this is such a hard barrier to get through at the very beginning of machine learning in an organization, but you have to get people to care even if you tell them, Hey, here's a ton of cash. So take those two pieces into account and apply a portfolio management strategy and evaluate them with respect to how much will they grow the business? What is the potential long-term to grow the business? How much room to run? You know How much market share is available? Or how, many, how much cost savings total? Short-term and especially some projects have long-term cost savings that are even bigger. So think of it that way.
0: Greg, let's hear from you. Then after Greg, Ken, and if anybody else wants to uh, jump in on this, please let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Or if you have a question, let me know. Add you to the queue. That goes for everybody on LinkedIn, Twitch, and YouTube. Uh, Greg, go for it.
2: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm such a, a promoter of standardization. Uh, if you are in the product space, there's nothing better than creating a standard funnel for hearing the voice of the customer and capturing that feedback as a mechanism to drive the roadmap for your product. So what you will need to spend time on is building that mechanism where you're taking in their feedback. And if it's a a, a team of business folks, have them create or you need to create a matrix uh, that ranks... The, uh, uh, the ideas, the business ideas, recommendations, or pain points that they're providing to you. And they need to provide justifications. Oftentimes we think, oh, I'm a data scientist. I need to check what the valuation is, what the, what the, 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 the cost um, or uh, the benefits will be, what, are, what is the revenue and things like that. Have the business folks do it. And, and your intake mechanism put all of these requirements put a template of questions that they need to ask. They need to read them to make sure that the problems they're bringing to you are in fact solvable by your solutions. Uh, so, so have this mechanism built in in the line, give them training on how to fill it up. Then you, what you will do is, uh, 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 in the beginning, it might be hard. You might find people uh, fight it. But once you have it launched, it will be so much easier for you to have business folks to come in and put their uh, ideas, put their pain points in there that will be uh, scored and that you can append effort to it because now you already know what the impact is to the business because they've already provided it to you. Uh, once you append the effort, now you have effort and impact. So you can kind of provide some sort of, uh, uh, what do you say, uh, trick, uh, trick, uh, You're going to trade effort with impact uh, to see what you need to go after. For example, uh, you may see that uh, tackling three low effort, low impact uh, pain points is better than focusing high effort to a high impact uh, idea or feature. So, uh, you need to make sure you have that process where you're gathering all of these pain points under one mechanism that makes it easy for you to really think about how you need to transform your product or your services that you're providing to your stakeholders. So think about that standardization and you'll be good.
0: Man, such fire advice from everyone. This is awesome. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, shout out to everybody else that joined us, Joe in the building. Good to see you, Joe. How you doing? Uh, Ronit, what's going on, Dave, my friend? How's it going, man? Uh, Spencer's in the building. What's up, Spencer? Um, Jay, what's going on, y'all? If you guys got any questions, please do let me know. If I can add on to that, for yes, please, please, absolutely, go for it.
1: Yeah. So, so for the use cases, but everything is spot on that Greg and Vin shared. I think also the one thing, and I, I think we've talked about this before, but. It's always also great, like you have multiple use cases, right? And a lot of them are going to make you, let's say, I don't know, like hundred million dollar opportunities, but they might not be easier. They're long-term projects. And if you identify that, I've, in my experience, it's not great to just focus on that because if you wait too long, be like, Hey, I'm going to deliver to you this in like three years, the business is going to get discouraged. So you always want to find some low hanging fruit as well. So maybe find a couple opportunities that are not going to do that kind of like huge $100 million impact. Maybe they'll do a million dollars but or whatever it is, but showing those quick wins and be like, hey, we did this in like three weeks. Let's see what we can do. So kind of keep them going. Kind of you feed them little pieces of bread, you know, until like the, the dinner are finally arrives. And I think that is very important to keep in mind because otherwise with the way today's companies work it's like people move around and uh things change so you don't want to wait five years or three to five years to just show like one project that you're going to deliver
0: absolutely man thank you so much
1: and i got distracted by mr ben with his new hairstyle
0: (laughs) ben's always got something new going on there
6: real life cyberpunk character that's right. I'm just trying to just trying to entertain the kids.
0: That looks awesome, man. Uh, yo, uh, Matt Diamond, I, I saw you uh, trying to unmute there a few times, my friend. Good to see. Yeah, you. no,
6: sorry, sorry about. That. Yeah, good to see you guys. I just to Antonio's point, data science is getting more and more mentions in the public domain. Obviously, it's beyond the buzzwords, but companies are mentioning in their quarterly earnings calls that data science has some major effects on their earnings. I know human capital companies are talking about it, so the quick wins that antonio just talked about that's starting to build more and more so i i wouldn't be surprised if your counterparties start to understand that there's actually substantial impact for data science now it's more than a conceptual thing these days that's all i wanted to say
0: well thank you very much matt appreciate that man speaking of, of you know data science like I mean, people keep talking about data science is dead and it's 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 dying or whatever ben what are your what are your thoughts on that
6: Data science is dead if it's not delivering value. So so I'll I'll get texts where people say, hey, I'm thinking about firing my data science team. But this is because it's been like many, many months with no value. And so I think uh, that's the distinction I'd make. I think good data scientists, they understand the business side, they partner with SMEs. They're not okay with 10, 12 you know, 15 months of academic work, they have a sense of urgency. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not dead. If anything, I'd say it's expanding. Like name a department that doesn't need data science. I think that's really hard. Name a job that doesn't need data science. It's like name a job that doesn't need uh, a database,
4: like a SQL database.
0: So, Ken, let's hear from you. And then uh, after Ken, we'll go to Joe.
4: Yeah, honestly, this is a question I get asked a lot on the internet is, is data science saturated? Is AutoML gonna take over what I'm doing? Thanks, Ben. Um, but, but you know, to me, I think that this is a, a really silly thing. I think people get so excited about what they see, the companies who are just elite tech companies who are on the cutting edge, what they're doing. And they forget that like almost every other company, 95% of companies are lagging behind in their analytic capabilities. And a lot of the times you really do have to walk before you can run. You have to create good data infrastructure. You have to do a lot of these other things as prerequisites to performing data science. And so there's gonna be this this lag of companies that are catching up to the baseline that are gonna be needing to hire data engineers, data scientists, machine learning engineers, whatever it might be. And that's gonna be over the the course of the next 10, 15 years. Like companies, big companies, if anyone's worked in one, they move really freaking slow. And the idea that like we're losing data science jobs, there aren't gonna be any around, they're gonna be taken over, to me is ludicrous because yes, technology moves fast, but people inherently don't move very fast, especially if they're associated with a very large organization. That's nothing to say that some of these organizations that are on the cutting edge aren't moving fast. They find unique ways or, or whatever works for them to be able to do that. But to me, there's a really hopeful message is that there's a lot of opportunity in data science. And knowing that, hey, I might, I might not work at, at a Google or an Amazon or whatever it might be, you know, the data science in those domains might be very different, but in you know, in industry and a lot of these other places where they aren't initially focused on technology, I believe there's gonna be an unbelievable amount of opportunity within this field or or with what you can do um, going forward. So I'll probably make a video on that at some point, but uh, to me, it frustrates me to see that question because what we're seeing in a small, small segment of the industry is not representative of all
0: of business. Yeah, dude, absolutely. I agree. And just, you know, the fact about big companies moving slow. Yes, they move slow, very slow. Uh, Joe, let's hear from you.
7: Yeah, I mean, Ben, Taylor, remember back in the day when like data scientists all thought that um, like analysts were going to be like dead and it's a dying profession and All this stuff, Um, because I think Ben and I came up in uh, the data kind of the machine learning epoch about the same time in in the same city, actually. So um, Uh, Joe has aged a lot better than I have. (laughs) (laughs) His models work. Both look great. Ben's only eighteen years years old. This is crazy. (laughs) Um, So, um, but I mean, you know, analysts are written off for dead. You know, and SQL is written off for dead. And I think that's actually the best time to get into something because, like, that means the hype cycle is starting to wear off. And now you're, in a, you know, you're going to start producing more value. Um, so I, whenever something's written off or dead, I always get really skeptical. And I think it's actually probably the best time to get into something, honestly, because then that means all the posers and, um, you know, people are kind of leaving. Uh, so
0: do you think that, you know, in the next coming years that the skill sets that you know, many data scientists possess, for example, being able to code, quantitative skills, reasoning, things like that are going to be requirements for this, you know, new phase of white-collar jobs that are emerging or no-collar type of jobs that are that are coming out. Uh, does that question make sense? Kind of. I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is everybody going to need to have some basic level of data science skills going forward mm. now, that, now that you know data is everywhere data is everything uh, Ben or Joe go for it
6: I, they have to be able to scope a problem they don't have to be able to yeah. solve it so if I am like someone if I'm working in marketing or in sales or somewhere I need to be able to say oh I think this could be an opportunity for my data science team if I can define a problem I feel like everyone should be able to do that but just like you don't know how, most of us don't understand how our engines work in our cars like it, it is the tool mindset right like um, I actually have to jump to another meeting, but it's good to see, y'all. Yeah, man, good to see you all. Yeah, There's some celebrities know. in here. Nothing <laughs> nothing but celebrities.
0: Oh, geez, man. It's celebrity, celebrity
7: party. <laughs> I, think, no. you know, and I, I like to get Ken's opinion on this, too. I think that there's... Um, like data literacy is definitely, I think, going to be more important um, for damn sure. Like, um, but being able to formulate a, a question and a hypothesis and, and use data to solve it, but that also means you're going to be working hand-in-hand with people who can probably implement um a way to solve it but yeah i see data literacy becoming more and more uh key i I don't think it's a skill that you could be without if you're in any sort of business role unless you're like a carpenter or something it doesn't matter so
0: (laughs) so what about when it comes to um asked a question here about or you mentioned about being able to come up with a question ben talked about scoping a problem i'm wondering what are some kind of uh i guess frameworks for lack of a better word that you guys have when it comes time to formulate a question or scope a problem. Uh, Vin, what about you? Then um, after that, we'll go to whoever else, maybe Greg.
3: So you're talking about scoping a problem or are we on the other question?
0: Um, well, uh, yeah, I guess that's- the
4: scope, Be- Before scope we move on to scoping, do you yeah. mind if I say one quick thing on the, Please, other, yeah. the other question? Yeah, yeah. In terms of skills for the future, I think that problem solving or the ability to, to like identify problems and also start getting to the solution, kind of piggybacking what Ben said is always gonna be important. And the way we do that is probably gonna change in the foreseeable future, the tools that we use, whatever that might be, but being able to getting to the next question, create some frameworks or use some existing frameworks that allow you to do that more effectively is what a service economy is gonna be about. So if we're moving away from manufacturing, we're moving away from whatever it might be in the US, um, teaching frameworks for thinking, potentially, you know, making tools easier to digest or whatever it might be, those are going to be the, the skills that are important to learn. As, as someone who sees a lot of new, new tools, a lot of new things in data science, the most important skill that I see for a data scientist to have is to pick things up quickly. So if I see a, a new library that's out there and I'm like, wow, I want to use that. I know I can probably learn that in a couple hours if I need to. And same thing goes for anyone in a skill skilled labor type of position is that, hey I, you know i'm going to be I have to solve this problem, I can use XYZ tools to to solve this. Can I pick up those tools because there's an abundance of them and be able to make them useful to me?
0: Absolutely. Learning how to learn is a skill and a superpower, which is why you guys should tune in to the episode I released today with Barbara Oakley, where we talk about learning how to learn. Dear for y'all. Um, Greg, let's uh, let's let's hear from you, and then also, Vin, on on actually, you know, combination of both questions. I know that the first question I asked is, will everybody need to be quote unquote a data scientist or possess data science skills? And also, um, if you can talk about problem scoping or question definition as well, uh, either or, go for it, Greg.
2: Yeah, I wanted to uh, build on what Ken was saying too, uh, and everybody else about uh, is data science that what people don't uh, tend to forget is that uh, uh, I don't think you can replace. The ability to run experiment uh, to gather more data. Uh, you know, you will find situations where you don't have enough uh, uh, data on hand to answer uh, what is the best way to solve a problem, and for that, you have to run experiment and capture data to for, to to uh, 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 perform. You know, take action, and 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 that data is critical for. Uh, uh knowing what kind of model you need to build to go after the solution you're trying to you're trying to implement uh, and, and these involves you know and, and especially data scientists to design those tests to test those hypotheses ask the right right questions and run these experiments uh, uh, and, and and capture the right data for that so uh, when I hear is uh data leaving is data scientists? leaving, that's not true. How, how are you going to automate that when uh, uh, use cases are so different and so unique uh, that that's why experimental design exists? Uh, uh, it, it each of these experiments need to be customized to the solution you're trying to bring together. And for that, you need experts for this. And this is not going away. And it's a powerful thing within the data science community. Uh, especially when they partner with uh, uh, behavior economics experts, uh, marketing experts, you name it. Um, How do I know how many, uh, for example, um, marketing uh, emails I should send to my customers to boost revenue? Do I know if it's three, five, four? How do I run an experiment for that? How do I capture that data uh, uh, to see uh, whether it's successful or not? And, And based on that data, how do I build a model uh, that tells me how many. What's the optimal amount of uh, uh, subscription or, or emails to send to my subscribers to to boost revenue? Those are the things that those are questions that cannot be automated. It, they need to be. They need uh, humans to to test. Um, in terms of uh, uh, scoping, um, they, they, it's a it's a long process. Uh, th- through my experience, I've uh, it has taken me uh, three months plus to even scope. And and what I mean by scope is defining the problem, aligning with stakeholders and coming up with a, a high level uh, solution. So a high level design for that solution. So it takes an effort between the tech folks and the business folks. So the business folks, one, have to agree that yes, this problem cannot be solved by uh, anecdotes or heuristics so you can't be uh, something like oh we know if they um, I- I'll give you a quick example. if they uh, agreed to onboard our tool after the uh, uh, what do you call uh, free trial, most likely they will uh, purchase more products from us right? So this is something that doesn't need any computer. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that the problems you're tackling, uh, it cannot be answered easily just by a simple question. It cannot be answered by a human. It needs discovering patterns in data. Uh, once you able to convince business folks that, yes, um, uh, you cannot uh, just bring your intuition into this, it needs more than that. Then the business can move on to another thing, which is, okay, what is at hand? Uh, Who do I need help from? We go to, okay, we need help from data scientists who can help us answer those questions we cannot answer just by looking at data with our raw eyes. Uh, This is where you uh, go into now involving data scientists for the scoping piece in terms of what are you experiencing in terms of pain point? What is the data that you have? Is ML a viable solution? Do you have the right data already available to run some analysis, uh, uh, perform some basis st- basic statistics and uh, see where you are? And then start thinking about what is the end point? What is the outcome that you want from this? And now with this outcome, what is the action as a business stakeholder you need to take based on that output? And that's where a lot of people are stuck We can build models very easily, and then what do we do with it? We have a model that makes many inferences, that makes many predictions, and we're stuck with those values, and we can't take any actions. Or we can't take actions fast enough. So at scoping, at the business problem understanding, you need to already have an idea of what needs to happen before you go into building. And that's the framework I usually uh, use.
0: I like that a lot. Is, is, is there like a, like a, maybe it's not a subtle difference, maybe there's no difference between asking a question and then like kind of scoping out the question? Because I feel like asking a question is kind of just, you know, colliding ideas, kind of creative, but then once you start scoping the question or scoping the problem, that's more active. You start, really start designing type of an experiment or, or something like that. Um, Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, the funny thing is the the business folks most likely will come with a problem. The questions... Or typically coming from the data scientist. Hey, does that make sense? Is this really true? Like, can you give me a proof of that? Can you, can you show me where this, this is coming from? How is that data populated right there? How do you collect this piece of data? Because they want to remove themselves from the whole intuitive, I've seen this for five years, I know it's true type of mentality that typically the business folks will bring. And they want to be as... Uh, 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 neutral as possible and listen to what the data is saying. And then when you go into the whole uh, uh, business deep dive, it's another painful one because now as a business guy, you want to make sure you go through the whole process with your data scientists so they can understand the origination of these events that create data. And that data is going to be used to form the solution. So funny enough, those questions are coming mostly from the technical side than the business folks themselves.
0: Vin, let's let's hear from you. And by the way, if anybody has any questions or comments or wants to add to this particular topic, please do let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Uh, everyone's voice is welcome here. Go for it, Vin.
3: So when it comes to, you know, I'm going to answer this backwards. When it comes to scoping, you've got sort of these extremes and everybody in business is on some place on the scale between I have a data scientist and I have no idea what to do with them to I have an organization that's ready to do a lot of the more rigorous activities involved in scoping correctly. And so you have to, at the very beginning, figure out from a maturity standpoint, where is your business? More than, I'd say more than half of data scientists were hired to tell the business what to do with a data scientist. I would say that's probably about half. I don't have the real, don't ask me for data. I don't have it. I'm kind of making that up. So I would say about half, and I'm I'm tripling down on it. Yes, no data. Um, But you're looking at, a process. And Greg's got, like, that's the end point. That's that's getting towards as good as you're going to get as far as a process is concerned. But you're often dealing with organizations that are still trying to figure out what the word digital actually means when it comes to their life. And you have people who have not touched a computer as part of their standard workflow, and they're not used to Interacting with that digital piece. And so you're not getting any data at all. I mean, that person might as well be working on the in the inside of a black hole. We have no idea what this person is doing. And you know, there's so much of this around, especially bigger businesses that are on that very, very immature side of scoping. And so, step one really in trying to figure out what you should do as a data scientist is figuring out what level of maturity the business is at, how much of the business Can you actually access with data? How much of the business can you even gather data about? How much of the business, and I mean, this is funny, but it's true. How much of the business are people scared of going and looking at? Because there are business units, especially in companies where there's been multiple acquisitions. There are business units that the C-suite is scared of knowing how they work. They continue to create cash and no one wants to know. And so I have to warn everybody that ever goes into scoping, if you don't watch out before you walk into some of these rooms, these rooms have minds just all over them. And so part of the exercise of scoping is first things first, go to places where people want you, figure out what the maturity level is, and then go to places where people want you. And then get those people to talk to other business units. And instead of you saying, hey, why don't you ask me to come in, have those people become your advocates. And then those advocates, those people that are actually promoting you, can get you into rooms that you're not able to get into on your own. And that's how scoping really starts at the wild, wild west phase. And so really look at it from the perspective of, is it possible to do what Greg says to do? because that's where you want to go. And you're probably going to find out, no, it's not possible right now. But you have to figure out how to get from where you are. And you're just a data scientist. But if you don't do this, your team fails. And I can't emphasize this enough. You don't want to be a strategist. But I'm sorry to tell you, if you're in one of those companies where you're not even digital transformed yet, you are. You're a strategist. I'm sorry. You know, if you don't want to be, it's time to go work at a very mature company where most of this stuff's already been built out because otherwise it's you, sorry, it is you who's going to have to do all of this. Like I said, I kind of answered the first question and then backed my way into the second one, but hopefully that made sense.
0: Pretty sure Vin is speaking directly to me because this was a point of our conversation we had last week. Uh, Yeah, man, it's not easy. Um, Yeah, Uh, Ken, go for it.
4: I actually have a question that comes off the back of that. And I, I have some thoughts on that, which I will also share. I don't want to frame this the discussion too much. But what is the best way to integrate or what are some unique ways to instigate organizational change in that sense? I found something that has been really powerful but difficult to harness is virality. So if you're building prototypes, you're building tools and that you're sharing them internally, like these things become like shared across your organization and eventually they reach the top and literally everyone's already using it. And so you're kind of bottom-up approach to making change. Unfortunately, that's a way that this has to happen a lot of the time, because at the top of a lot of organizations, the CEO, CTO, whoever it might be, is generally can be clueless about what's going on, hands-on on on the data teams. And I was wondering if if people believe that that's a viable long-term approach, the virality aspect, building prototypes and tools and getting people to use these things even before they're um they're necessarily called for or they've you know like the plan around these things have been put together project scoped whatever that might be or is there a better way to get through to organizations where at the top they just don't get it um uh, you know is there another way to force their hand
0: Antonio, i feel like you might have some good insight here what do you think um so i think i've tried kind of
1: both approaches where we used to say, like, "Well, I'm gonna put it in front of you, and you're gonna see how cool it is, and then you're gonna you're gonna start using it." And I think it does work up to a certain point because they like the prototype. They're like, "Oh yeah, that's great." A lot of times it's happened, and they're like, "We love it." But if it didn't solve, if a lot of times, I guess, it differentiates between they, them saying it, "I love it." It's the difference has to be it's nice to have versus this is business critical. Cause a lot of times I've created projects and they're like, oh, I love this. And then after like two months, nobody's used it yet. I'm like, well, I thought you said you loved it. And they're like, well, we do love it, but like kind of right now we're, we're focused on on something else. That's not really our priority. And I think kind of what's, what has worked for me, cause we, we kind of started a new organization. And we we're trying to really breaking into these different uh, themes, and the best advice I got was you have to kind of do the dirty work that they don't want to do. Like, so when we would go into the room, and it's like, okay, what is like it? it it's boring, or it's like the dirty data, or they don't want to clean it. Doesn't much, doesn't maybe, doesn't even provide too much value, but. It's kind of, they don't want to do that. So I was like, all right, this work that you don't want to do, I'll do it for you. And then kind of to get on their good side. And then eventually, once you get on their good side, uh, kind of you start instituting those changes, kind of like Ken, what you were saying before, when you make your videos, you kind of like nudge them in a certain direction slowly. So you deliver that. So same thing, it's been, I'm going to give you exactly what you want, even though I think it's not the best solution right now. I'll give that to you and then slowly I'll start to change it. So hopefully that makes sense. Like if if you ask me for a machine learning model and I don't think it's the best use case, but it's not too much work on my end, maybe I'll create that for you, but then I'll try to nudge you into a little bit of a different direction to show you how it could be better.
4: Is there some value from what you said? I, what, I, what I really liked is creating value for people, saving them time, whatever that might be. That doesn't necessarily like clearly equate to business value, but is that perhaps a way to, to like, essentially like weasel the idea into their head is that, hey, like these analytics have, have created value for me with my time, with my specific job. Is that even more powerful sometimes than, than creating like millions of dollars for your business? If you save five of the people uh, on an adjacent, you know, business unit five hours a week because of something you made, and it makes the, the business, you know, in theory that makes the business some money, but it's not exactly quantifiable. Um, does that goodwill carry through, or is that just like, hey, we, you know, we made it, and and it didn't make the business money, and so we're going to abandon these types of things?
1: Well, That's I, I general question. Yeah, I think it's it's weird because ultimately you're dealing with people, and when so when I was back in like hands on, I. I was working with non-technical people and I automated this one uh, woman's report. She was kind of like a financial analyst and it was saving, she went from like 40 hours of an analysis to kind of like 15 minutes uh, UI path, like 100% automated. And while that wasn't that transformational value, right, I, I basically saved her salary, I guess, but I don't know how much she was making. But then after that, like the weird thing would happen, like you're saying with, the, I don't know if it's Goodwill or something, it would be like, she will be in another meeting with somebody and they would need some kind of analytics and they don't have an answer. They're like, oh, Antonio, he did some data last time and it worked, well, let's ask him again, you know? Or it was just, and it kind of works for the business as well. I mean, I, so I work at a Verizon. So to move the needle, like 1%, you have it's like a crazy amount of money. But also I think for yourself, it creates that goodwill because ultimately whatever happens to me, Verizon is going to be okay. But me helping out those people kinda, yeah, like you're saying, you create value, but you also help yourself, you help your career. Uh, kind of like gets people talking. And then when later, when I ended up switching teams, what I found out was that a lot of the people love working for me with me as a data scientist for them or like data analyst, was because I made them feel safe. Like every time they ask me something, hey, can we do this? I'm like, of course we can. Like, let's go. Let's do it. I'll get it done for you. And they kind of like felt, felt very relieved. So like you're saying, those things can be measured because afterwards I'm like, wait, why do you guys say you miss me? This person, next person is better than me. Obviously, at like coding and doing the data stuff. And then afterwards I realized, well, I made jokes. I made them laugh. I made them feel safe. And ultimately, that's what people are there for. You know, they want to work, they want to improve the company, but they also don't want to be miserable. They want to have some fun. Yeah,
0: that's an excellent point. Thank you very much, Antonio. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Vin. Let's let's hear from you on on this topic.
3: No, I think it's interesting when you look at this from a short-term perspective, you've got to get those wins and you've got to get advocates on your side. And, you know, that's something that I talk about a lot is you got to get some sort of momentum started. And if that means that you have to get one key player on your side by writing a report for them that takes you, you know, two days worth of work and might make the company $25, that's good. Because, you know, it's $25 of real savings, but you have an advocate. And if you spend a month, picking up 5 or 10 advocates you know during a year that's not a wasted month because every single one of those people are going to allow you access to other parts of the organization because you simply don't have the relationships yet and so that's part of building out a new organization and you know this i'm kind of talking down the road but you are building a data and analytics organization you know and again this is back to whether you know it or not you're doing a lot of this stuff and you're laying the groundwork for a lot of the ideas that are more complex, more uh, more revenue generating. And so that's your beginning. But you also have to remember the C-suite is lurking. And they're, they're the sharks swimming in the amount of money that you cost. And you cost a lot. And at some point, somebody is going to look at a data science group and say, okay, I need to see revenue not so much cost savings. Somebody's going to say, look, I need to see revenue because you you talk about finance as a group. Yeah, you need finance, but are they a revenue generator? Eh, So they have a really hard time getting budget for big initiatives unless they make it a strategic initiative and you don't want to have to do this long, long sales pitch for everything that you do. So at some point, you have to start generating revenue for the company and so you have to translate all of that goodwill into a product line or at least into a main feature in the largest product line. And you have to start putting revenue around your neck. You have to you know, put that around so you can walk around with, okay, I have advocates and check it out. I have a dollar value now too. And that's really, there's a transition point where you have to go from small projects, little quick wins that prove and build relationships to I have cash. I make money, please don't destroy my team because you're building a data and analytics organization and you're going to have to get justification for infrastructure to do meaningful projects. You're going to have to justify headcount. You're going to eventually take over resources from other organizations, which no one's going to be happy about. And you have to have C-suite buy-in for that because you have to bring this all under one roof. And so everything that I'm talking about is this sort of walking towards something that is sustainable, revenue-generating versus cost-center. And that is now a strategic business unit, not just a team of data scientists. And so, yeah, you definitely start wherever you find yourself, but realize that you have to quickly move someplace much, much further forward.
0: Man, so many knowledge bombs. That's a uh, phenomenal, Vin. Thank you. You know what would be an awesome podcast, the Vin Fascista on Candice Nearest neighbors. I think that'd be a good, good episode. You guys should uh, make that happen. Sometime. I literally so literally
4: just send
2: him the invite.
0: So, <laughs> Greg, go for it.
2: Yeah, I uh, fully agree with what Vin, uh, what Vin said. I think uh, for me, the best framework is to have a scrappy solution, a scrappy solution that gets you the quick win that Ven was talking about. And those quick wins, they need to uh, be directly connected to some sort of sales, additional sales uh, that you're generating uh, for the business. With that scrappy solution, you need to find your champion. Your champion is a stakeholder who's, who maybe be a decision maker or somebody who will speak on your behalf. And that champion also will also you will already talk to that champion about your big vision, the opportunity. What is the big opportunity out there? If you build that scrappy solution into a fully functional product, that person already needs to understand and align with you on that. And then once you have that person, then you prepare what I call some sort of what-if analysis with options that you can present to bigger, larger group of stakeholders. You always want to leave the decision maker with options. And and, and that that technique, to me, it's about putting the fear of missing out, missing up an opportunity. And in this sense, you have option A that gives you, if you go after this, this is the opportunity this will give you. Data already shows you that a scrappy solution is resulting to these added sales to your business. If you give me budget, a budget, I will be able to go after this bucket right here, which is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Option B gives you another type of bucket. And option C, potentially it may be the worst case scenario. We're getting lost footage, missing opportunities, in getting, letting our competitors take over from us. When you do this, you let the decision maker analyze what you have done in a quick, short time period to generate value and also what could be in terms of opportunity and also what they would miss if they don't take action. This is all you need, a champion, a scrappy solution and a framework to help the decision-maker make a decision at a, fast peri- at a fast pace and give you some budget to go forward.
0: This is one of those episodes I'll be uh, listening to again and again. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Um, Nisha, real quick, you had some awesome comments here about um, d- defining the question. I'd love to have you unlock it from the chat and share it with us.
8: Um. Yeah, so I was more talking in terms of uh, my experience. Trying to define a question is, um, it's helpful, but it's not always easy to do that when you're talking with so many stakeholders. And at the same time, everybody telling you, especially me as a public servant, I, I work for the state government. So we are obligated to, Answer questions that come from the public, and everyone is throwing at a million questions that come to you at the same time. So you need to narrow down which ones are you going to answer, and will we be able to answer? So um, that that's just I think more applicable to my area. I I'm not sure how other domains usually um, use, but. I think from a, a government perspective, when there are so many questions that the public ask, and you when you are obligated to answer all those, it's definitely difficult to frame that question and then figure out if you do have the data. So there is an initial exploring of data that needs to happen to some extent before you can actually frame the question and then take it forward through the data cycle.
0: No, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that a lot of our audience works for the government, so that's awesome to have that kind of unique insight there. Thank you so much. Um, anybody else have any other questions or any other the comments on what we're talking about? Eric, any comments on what we are talking about earlier? Good. Russell, any comments? I think Russell might have froze on us. All right, guys. Does not look like there are any more questions or comments. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your schedule to hang out. Definitely uh, an awesome session probably one of my favorite ones number 40 mansca it's a good one i'm looking forward to listening to this one again and again uh guys take care make sure you check out the episode that i released earlier today with barbara oakley learning how to learn don't forget to join in on the sunday office hour session none of you guys ever show up why you guys leave me hanging on sunday mornings man come hang out with me come hang out uh it'll be fun and next week big episode uh being released one that i'm really happy about is with the one and only James Altucher Um, James has been like such a huge huge uh, influence on me over the last year or so and um, just getting him on the podcast was mind-blowing so definitely check that out yeah guys take care have a great great rest of your evening rest of the weekend hopefully see you guys on Sunday and as usual my friends remember you've got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone